What does male sexuality look like from a non-addict's perspective? Today we'll continue the discussion about intimacy from last week's episode in this edition of Recovery Support with Kevin Bergen. This is Recovery Support, and I'm Kevin Bergen, licensed psychotherapist. This show is to support those in recovery from compulsive behavior and to offer that support with education, inspiration, and motivation. The spiritual nature of any 12-step program invites everyone from various religious and non-religious backgrounds. From this diversity, we can learn something new and insightful because everyone brings something of value to the table. I'm going to continue this week sharing a different portion of Gordon MacDonald's book, When Men Think Private Thoughts. He comes from a Christian perspective, and while sometimes this Christian perspective wouldn't be shared at a 12-step meeting, I found Mr. MacDonald's wisdom and perspective helpful to many of my clients, Christian and non-Christian alike. Listen with a discerning ear today and glean what might be helpful to you from Gordon MacDonald's experience and his point of reference. Last week we talked about the mystery of intimacy. I'd like to continue with more thoughts about intimacy and how it relates to sexuality. Take special notice of how this material is presented by and for non-addicts. I wonder how different an approach you'll notice. I'll begin now on page 41 and then I'm going to skip over and start on page 48 of When Men Think Private Thoughts by Gordon MacDonald. The Confusions of Sexuality You're watching professional football on television. In the final minute of a close game, one of the teams scores the winning touchdown. There's pandemonium in the stadium and euphoric teammates dash toward the end zone to pile on the ball carrier. In their delirium, they embrace, they lift one another up off the ground roll about on the grass. There's headbutts, pats on the rear end, and even a few effusive kisses when the helmets come off. In any other setting, we might think it's not unlike a Bacchanalian orgy. Where else would you see men show affection like this? Well, you might see it on a battlefield. A soldier dying, for example, cradled in the arms of a buddy. We've all seen such pictures. The appearance is similar to a mother cuddling her child. So that's a second place where men might be observed showing strong affection with each other. A third place might be on a Latin American street corner where friends meet and exuberantly embrace each other with repeated slaps on the back. A fourth in those parts of Eastern Europe where men kiss each other on the lips and don't miss the possibility that some good-natured wrestling among boys may be little more than affection in disguise. Apparently, in the right place at the right time, and in the proper cultural setting, men are not necessarily as undemonstrative, aloof, and dispassionate as we're led to think. With enough joy or sorrow or suffering or plain reverential love, you might have the ingredients for intimacy. I was once asked to give some talks to several hundred men who had gathered for a spiritual retreat. At the beginning of one session, I said, Gentlemen, at the end of our meeting tonight, I'm going to challenge you with what Billy Graham calls an invitation. I'm going to invite anyone who hears God speaking to him on a personal basis about something significant in his life to come to the front of this auditorium 
and kneel for prayer. I'm also going to ask that if any of the rest of you see a friend down here, you come and kneel with him and share the moment. Don't let anyone do something like this alone. Then I started into my presentation and quickly realized that I was too tired to do a good job. Words weren't flowing. My recall of the outline was poor. I had the feeling that I wasn't really communicating well with the audience. As a result, I began to dread the upcoming moment of invitation because I felt sure no one would come to the front. But I'd made a commitment and I had to deliver. So when I finished my second-rate talk, I did as I'd promised. I invited men who sensed a need to respond to come forward. To my surprise, they did. Not just a few, but many. Before long, the front of the auditorium was carpeted with kneeling men, dozens and dozens of them. In keeping with what I'd asked, others came and knelt with friends. It was a remarkable sight, a witness to the fact that God doesn't need some eminent speaker to get his work done in the lives of men. When it seemed as if no one else would come, I dismissed the rest of the crowd, asking them to leave in silence so that the auditorium could become a room of prayer. I slipped out a side door to get some fresh air and to be alone for a moment where I could apologize to God for my lack of faith. Twenty or thirty minutes later, I returned. I have never forgotten what I saw upon entering that room. My perception was that none of the men who had come forward had left. Rather, they were scattered throughout the room in groups of twos, threes, and fours. Two things immediately impressed me. First, the tears. Many men were weeping openly. Second, the male intimacy. Almost all of the men were touching, hugging, embracing somehow in a very quiet way, reminiscent of the winning team in the end zone and the wounded soldiers in combat. If they were praying, they prayed with arms about each other. I saw several men holding one another almost as a father might a child while one wept through some sense of spiritual brokenness or another. I remember standing in a state of total surprise. I'd never seen anything quite like it in a spiritual setting. I recall thinking almost out loud that there are two things men desperately need from one another that generally speaking they are not getting or giving permission to express their deepest feelings to one another and the freedom to be affectionate. Apparently most of us can experience them only when there's supreme joy, when there's intense suffering or when something has touched the depths of our spirits. It is the second of these two permissions that concerns me at this moment for when men think private thoughts they wonder about this strange mixture of instincts that draws them toward women but causes them to feel distant from other men. What is it that may have gone wrong? Turning now in Gordon MacDonald's book to page 48, Hormonal Awakening. The coming to life of the sex glands, that time that we call puberty, creates a whole new reality in the quest for intimacy. This hormonal awakening takes something that was once relatively simple, the relationship of male and female, and gives it a complexity not likely to cease until death. The desire to connect, 
as a boy once connected with his mother and later with his father and friends now becomes intertwined with the emergence of mysterious and intense sexual curiosities and desires. These new hormones, at one moment seemingly dormant, at another raging beyond all control, have the effect of an inner tornado on a teenage boy. One summer, he's turned off by the company of girls as he pursues his brands of male activity. The next summer, he's obsessed with every female who crosses his path. He's interested in breasts, flirtations, sexual humor, and every opportunity he can find to be in the presence of girls. He also struggles with the loss of control over his own body. Erections are beyond his control, for example. Is there a man alive who does not remember the anxiety caused by a penile non-cooperation while sitting at a schoolroom desk? How about the fear that a teacher might ask you to stand and answer a question or the dread that the bell-ending class might ring and you would have to walk out of class in such a condition? And everyone would know. It's not unlike the anxiety of some older men who fear that what once wouldn't cooperate will no longer function at all. Not many men can remember the exact moment that new kind of awareness of connection between a boy and a girl began. I'm one who does remember. It was the first day of school in the fall, sixth grade. I was sitting on a bench near the school's main entrance, waiting for some friends to arrive. A girl named Barbara approached me. She was quiet for a moment, and then with one finger, she pushed back at the front edge of my very blonde hair and said, You have the most beautiful hair. I have never been the same since that moment. I was without words. Her touch to the top of my head and her comment about my hair ignited something inside me. I lost all interest in waiting for my friends. Something magic had occurred. But if there was something profound that I should have missed, I missed it. And soon the magic moment was gone and Barbara skipped off to other things. From that day forward, my mother never had to speak to me again about my appearance as I left for school. Rather, she had to speak more about the amount of time I spent in the bathroom inspecting my face, my hair, all the things that might catch Barbara's attention, or any other girls for that matter. I suddenly knew who I wanted to please and how wonderful it had been that touch on my hair and those simple words, you have the most beautiful hair. I had experienced connection of a new kind and all I knew was that I wanted more and more and more of it. These are the times when all kinds of sexual storms are launched in the male experience. Issues and temptations that women do not seem to fully understand. Issues and temptations that may dog many men for the remainder of their lives. The desire for sexual stimulation and satisfaction becomes an inner storm of great magnitude brought under control only if it is supported by a sound belief system and a balanced set of healthy male and female relationships that provides various kinds of intimate connection. But again I ask, what happens when there isn't a sound belief system? When one suffers from a lack of healthy male and female relationships, when intimacy is confused, when loneliness and feelings of isolation are pronounced, then there are likely to be sexual confusions of one kind or another. 
sexual intimacy, meant to be satisfying and fortifying, becomes something else, a set of varying counterfeit experiences that can be destructive to every part of a man's life. For lack of a better term, I simply call them the great battles in male sexuality. Five battles come to mind. Most men have fought in one or more of these battles. In all cases, there's a reluctance to talk about one's battle experiences because of shame and guilt. But get a group of men in a place where they're willing to talk frankly, and almost all of them will admit that some of these battles have at one time or another been a real threat to their character and wholeness. Make a comment about such battles, and there will sometimes be a quiet but nervous laughter in the group, the kind that allows each person to admit without using words that he's gone through such a struggle at one time or another. Here they are. Fantasy. The first battle is what we often call fantasy. The word is used to describe mental images and scenes that capture the mind, a sort of inner pornography. Most men and women know the experience of periods in their life when they've found their minds abounding with endless mini-dramas that offer alternative scenarios to what they experience in reality. The fantasy world of a young teenage boy or a man is not to be underestimated. It's an amazing array of episodes, sometimes played and replayed to best suit the dreamer. In these fantasies, he plays lover in one form or another to an endless list of women as he imagines all kinds of possibilities. A lot of men live in such a fantasy world, and they lavish all the energies of their hearts upon these fictional or not-so-fictional characters who enter upon the inner stage. Those of us who were brought up in the church and constantly warned about the evils of lust, because that's the biblical word for this event, felt ashamed of their fantasy lives. We felt trapped by the teaching that most fantasies, if not all, were sinful, and the fact that our minds, for the most part, simply wouldn't obey either our commands or the Bibles. The fantasies were there, whether we liked them or not. For a period of time, it seemed as if all our faith depended on whether or not we could master our fantasy lives. My recollection is one of great desperation every time someone would ask again if we wanted to recommit. Rededication was the word in vogue. To recommit our lives to God, to missionary service, to anything God might want us to do. How, we asked ourselves, could we be of use to God when our minds harbored such offenses? Sometimes we boys heard that if we took cold showers, did a lot of singing, or made sure we were never alone, we could overcome the fantasy problem. But such remedies never really did much to solve the problem. A college student leaves a note in my office box, quote, I have a strong desire to be a man after God's heart, but I'm a totally defeated person. I find that I can't get my mind under control about sexual issues, and I get caught up in sexual thoughts almost any time of the day. The worst is the realization that I can't even control my thoughts when I'm praying. I've asked God again and again to take these temptations away, but if anything, they get worse. Is this perversion? Is there anything you can tell me that would help? Unquote. 
There is one thing I can do to set his mind at ease in the beginning, and that is to assure him that he's not alone. As far back as 1,600 years ago, Jerome wrote, In the remotest part of a wild and stony desert burnt up with the heat of the scorching sun so that it frightens even the monks that inhabit it, I seemed myself to be in the midst of the delights and crowds of Rome. Many times I imagined myself witnessing the dancing of the Roman maidens as if I had been in the midst of them. I tamed my flesh by fasting whole weeks. I am not ashamed to disclose my temptations. Among the best-known missionaries of the 20th century is Jim Elliott, who, in January of 1956, was one of five who lost their lives when ambushed by the Alca Indians in Ecuador. Talk to anyone who knew this modern martyr of the faith, and you'll get universal agreement that there was hardly a man in any generation who ever loved God who wished to serve him and obey him more than Jim Elliot. That's why it brings comfort to any man to read the Elliot Journal and discover that this man also struggled with sexual temptation. Credit him for remaining faithful to his commitments both to God and to his fiancée, Elizabeth. But remember that he also struggled in the loneliness of hours spent in the jungle where he served among the Indians. At a particularly lonely moment, he wrote, As I said, I want a woman, just one to hold and press against me, to feel and fondle with my lips and fingers. Disgustingly, it could be any woman, as I cannot seem to bring her, that is, his fiancée, Elizabeth, fixedly to mind. And it is just the woman want that plagues me, the craving to feel one close to me. On another occasion, he wrote, Yesterday, walking back from Angu's house after injecting Augustine, who, praise God, is better after his near-death struggle with pneumonia, I was alone in the cool, dark forest, and I knew then how vulnerable I am just now to attacks of fleshly temptations. Even then, I don't know how it would have been had I met an Indian woman alone in the trail. Oh God, what a ferocious thing is sexual desire, and how often it is on me now. Two themes seem to dominate most fantasies. The first is control. In fantasies, the dreamer is able to manipulate every circumstance to suit his own desires and expectations. It's an alternative to a real-world in which he feels that he is never in control, that people he admires are not his to know, that circumstances in which he would like to be involved are not his to experience. The second theme is connection. Fantasies are the first indication that a boy or a man feels lonely, cut off. The mind, in its great need for intimacy, will create connection in the fantasy dimension if it can't experience it in real-time settings. The college boy who writes to me is involved in a campus lifestyle, yet a conversation is likely to reveal that he feels close to no one. He has a need for conversation and human fellowship that he's not experiencing at levels satisfying to the soul. Thus, his mind in partnership with his sexual drive employs sexual metaphors and word pictures to create an entire alternative life within. 
If connection can't happen in real space and time, the mind is likely to create it in mental space. In a wonderful book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey offers an observation made first by Francois Mariac concerning the fantasy of older men, something many younger men will be amazed to know about since there's a suspicion that one grows out of difficulties with sexual fantasies. Quote, Old age risks being a period of redoubled testing because the imagination in an old man is substituted in a horrible way for what nature refuses him. Unquote. Or put in simple words, what nature denies, the imagination creates. I would like to enlarge the scope of Muriak's thought and propose that what nature or custom or circumstance denies or forbids, the imagination is likely to create. This is the source point for lust and fantasy, active imaginations that offer men, women also, the opportunity to engage inwardly in activities that are not happening outwardly. Battle number two, masturbation. A second issue in the life of a growing male has to do with sexual self-stimulation or masturbation. One is probably not far wrong if he suggests that sooner or later almost every male has engaged in masturbatory experiences and there have long been arguments about the significance of this act upon one's mental and spiritual health. Surely we've put the concern of physical health behind us now. You'll go blind. Your genitals will likely fall off. You'll lose your sexual ability. In the world of Christian sexual ethics, however, one will probably not find anyone who would encourage masturbation, although some psychologists and counselors seem to acknowledge the practice as a natural function. Their caution has been centered on the tendency for some to carry on an addictive pattern. Like fantasy, masturbation is probably a signal, a statement about one's sense of loneliness and need for intimacy. The impulse to masturbate can be caused by the experiences of fantasy, exposure to sexually stimulating events in movies, television programs, or one's feelings of social awkwardness and isolation. Unable to engage in satisfying relationships with others, a man finds it easier to retreat and create feelings of intimacy in his own private world. The growing desire for intimacy, combined with the growing activity of sexual glands, makes masturbation almost a certainty in the lives of teenagers for a period of time. And it ought to be no surprise that more than a few adult married men, even sexually active in the healthiest fashion, respond to an occasional temptation to masturbate. In later years, it'll also be a strong indicator of a sense of isolation and loneliness. Battle number three, pornography. Pornography is a third response to an intimacy deficit. Most women find the use of pornography to be repulsive. Most men share this feeling, but men will nevertheless be a bit more understanding, for more than a few of them will go through a period in their lives when they find one form of pornography or another the object of such strong curiosity that they'll finally surrender and indulge themselves. Many of us were introduced to pornography when we were teenagers. If one grows up in a home where nakedness is seen as shameful, it's almost predictable that pornography is going to become a temptation. 
The magazines, the videos, and the pictures all seem to offer one thing. Secrets. The secrets of women's bodies. The secrets of what people do together behind closed doors. And secrecy and intimacy parallel each other. Side note, this book was written before the age of internet pornography and its availability in any home. If the truest form of intimacy is what happens when people open their souls to each other, sexual intimacy becomes something of a substitute experience. In the marriage setting, sexual intimacy is meant to reflect the drama of the other forms of intimacy. But when those are not available, a man is likely to be drawn toward what he can get. And that is what pornography seems to offer. What is going on in the mind of a man who purchases a magazine, rents a video, or frequents an adult bookstore? He is seeking intimacy, although it may be of a kind that another person might not understand. He's hungry to connect with another human being, and he is unable, for various reasons, to make it happen. He wants to know the secrets of a woman's heart, and her nakedness is symbolic of these secrets. Somehow, the tricky mind begins to reason that to know something of a woman's nakedness, to be in a setting where she exposes herself in the most sexual or even the most perverse ways, is to bring her under his control to know her in a satisfying way. To see her respond in intimate settings of sexual relationship will satisfy the curiosity, but for just a short time. Then the old curiosity will rise again. Talk to any man who's become involved in pornography, and he'll admit that the satisfaction from such an experience lasts but a very short time. Each journey into the magazine pages or the videotape carries with it such promise that the ultimate experience of satisfaction may be found. But it never is. It only creates the need for more. Another side note. This being in the age before internet pornography, Gordon MacDonald doesn't touch on the insatiable, sometimes uncontrollable urge for some men to simply escape and that's what internet pornography in the home can sometimes provide. Battle number four, sexual promiscuity or sex addiction. A fourth route to unhealthy intimacy is that of sexual promiscuity. If the intimacy deficit is great enough, a man will begin his search for human connection by moving sexually from one woman to another, seeking what he believes to be the ultimate experience that will both satisfy the longing of the heart and prove that he's a man. He unconsciously concludes that the portal of human communion is sexual experiences and that in a multiple of lovers lies satisfaction for a lonely heart. Somewhere along the line, when he's spiritually burned out, hardened in his cynicism, he discovers to his horror that what little ability to be intimate he originally had is now lost or impaired. My belief is that we have a long way to go before we fully understand the mind of the man who is sexually promiscuous or, in the extreme sense, has a sex addiction. We do know that a pattern emerges in such lives that become very difficult to control. A pastor said to me, 
among the very worst things I ever did was to bring the cable movie channels into my home. I found it easy to get back up after my wife had gone to bed and she was asleep. I'd watch some of the movie channels with movies where there was a lot of nudity and sexual play. All it did was rouse old feelings I thought I'd gotten rid of when I was married. Then I'd be sitting in my study one afternoon thinking about what I'd seen last night. That would get me thinking about the area of our city where there is a lot of adult bookstores. Before long, I'd be driving through that area. The next day, I'd go back, park the car, and walk the street. A third day, I'd go back, park, walk, and poke my head into one or two places. The fourth day, I'd be in one of them, looking at magazines and watching videos in booths, setting my mind on fire. Then I'd begin to feel very, very bad, and I'd, I'd have a moment in which I'd totally repudiate the whole thing, and I'd feel marvelously free. I'd preach about sin the next Sunday, and more often than not, people would say I sounded like a powerful prophet. I'd think I'd finally beaten this temptation. But a couple of months later, I'd find myself going back and repeating the same cycle. This has been going on for several years, into this stuff, and then out of it, then back into it." Unquote. These are the words of a man who is probably struggling with an addictive pattern of sexuality. Unless he opens himself up to serious, ongoing conversation with a trained and compassionate person, he's not likely to beat the pattern. Incidentally, I'm not surprised that a pastor would tell this sort of story any man who's involved in work that concerns caring for people, motivating people, or helping people is likely to find himself tempted toward issues of sin pertaining to intimacy. As the politician is tempted to abuse power, and the business person is tempted to misuse money because of greed, and the intellectual is tempted to a kind of arrogance, so the people person can be tempted toward sins that cluster about the issue of intimacy. Battle number five, abuse. There is a fifth, and if these are to be compared, most tragic possibility in the life of a man who does not know how to enter into the relationship of intimacy. It is the foulsome events of molestation and physical abuse. We wonder in horror at the man who foists himself upon young girls, both in and beyond his own family, and forces them into sexual events that will play havoc with their minds and their sense of well-being for the remainder of their lives. We're shocked each time we hear of a man filled with rage who beats or even kills his wife or his girlfriend. Until the last few years, almost none of us had any comprehension of the number of women who reported that they had been sexually abused by their fathers or other men who, as family members or close friends of the family, took advantage of their position of power and influence. Our shock was exacerbated when we discovered that some of these men were professing Christians and leaders in their churches. What should never surprise us is how deceived and twisted the mind can become through the power of evil as it rationalizes and justifies its way through events that have catastrophic consequences. Various forms of abuse probably stem from early frustrations in the area of intimacy. Intimacy spurned, ridiculed, 
betrayed. Anger builds in the heart and mind of a man, and he begins to conclude that the only way he can relate to the opposite sex is by forcing himself upon girls and women who are in no position to defend themselves. This book is not designed, and its author is not trained to inquire into the causes of sexual abuse. But this is a moment to pause and plead with men who have struggled with their sexual desires and who have abused women who have loved and trusted them. This is the moment to tell them that help must be sought. It is an understatement to say that the life and well-being of a young girl, a wife, or a family may be in the balance. The need for friendships with other men. These past pages have not been easy to write. Those who organize their lives around the Bible would be hard-pressed to find any way to duck the realization that these sexual battles are identified with issues of sin. A man was not built by his Creator to live as a loser in any one of these battles. It does no man any good if he takes a look at various forms of sexual deviance in his life and excuses himself as some sort of victim. The Scriptures call him to make a break with such behaviors, and I can hear some men say, more easily spoken than done. Nevertheless, a man has to start somewhere if he wants to be a pleasure to his God and a healthy man in all of his relationships. He begins with renouncing or repenting of his behaviors. No change is possible if there is not an inner agreement that something is morally and spiritually wrong. No excuses, no mitigating circumstances, just renunciation. And where does he go from there? Before I suggest a possible direction, let me recap where we've been. These conclusions thus far, that men are in desperate need of intimacy or connection throughout their lives, that intimacy involves connection of body, mind, and soul, that when soul and mind are closed off, sexual intimacy may be the only thing that appeals to men that when men find themselves cut off from various forms of intimacy, they are likely to struggle with temptations toward fantasy, masturbation, pornography, promiscuity, and abuse. Men are almost always surprised by my suggestion that one of the major keys to controlling sexual temptation is having close friendships with other men. In one sense, it's simple. If the need for connection is exclusively centered on the female gender, be ready for an onslaught of struggles with fantasy and lust at the very least. You, my male friend, are a relational being. You must connect. God has made you to share life with a host of people, not just your wife. You are meant to share life with other men as you work with them, fight the battles of life with them, and discover the world with them. This is the meaning of friendship, walking through life with the brothers, encouraging one another, challenging one another, and assisting one another. When we retreat from this, cut ourselves off spiritually and emotionally from the other men of the village, we set ourselves up for sexual struggle. Everyone who has ever evaluated the adulterous sin of David in the Old Testament has observed that his time of temptation came when he was alone in his palace 
rather than where he apparently belonged, with the men in his army who were engaged in conflict. The scripture is not explicitly saying this, but it seems reasonable to suggest that David did at least two things to himself. He created within himself an uneasy sense of manhood when he wasn't where the men were. Therefore, he had to prove himself in a different way, a way that proved to be sexual. Second, he was a pushover for the beauty of a naked woman. I'm back to where this chapter got its start. Standing on a stage where men have come forward in response to my Billy Graham-like invitation. Scores of men are working through key issues in their spiritual journeys. Many of them are praying. There are lots of tears in this room, the kind that men don't often shed unless they've really gotten in touch with some deep feelings. There's lots of affection in this room, the kind you might see on an athletic field, a battlefield, or a place where two old friends are meeting. I think about how we men have been so cheated by our culture, by our fear of the feminine in us. But let a man get down to doing business in his soul, and strange and wonderful things begin to emerge. One of them is a kind of intimacy that really does help a man become a man. That concludes our reading for this week from When Men Think Private Thoughts by Gordon MacDonald. I encourage you to get a copy of this book if any of this touched you. There was much that was maybe dated because of the lack of internet when he wrote this book, but there's also so much that rings true for sex addicts today. I'd like to share the third step prayer with you. You can find it by Googling third step prayer. It's also on page 63 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's in the essay white book on page 95. If you know it, please join me. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. As I mentioned in the last two episodes of Recovery Support, I'm considering reducing the frequency of the podcast to once or twice a month. This is mainly due to veritable silence from you, the listeners. I've enjoyed a couple emails recently asking me to keep it going weekly, and I'd like to know from more of you if it makes a difference for you. Is there any impact on you in this podcast? I would also encourage you to leave reviews for the podcast at iTunes so that the message can be spread to a wider audience. The Recovery Support Podcast does not promote any program or fellowship and it only informs about resources that have been helpful to my clients. You can refer to the show notes at recoverysupport.podbean.com. Have a terrific week and have a sober day.